Well, all right. Uh, you got an outline when you came in. If not, there's some in the back table. If you want to turn to the book Song of Solomon, or maybe your title has Song of Songs on it. It's always an interesting study through the book of uh, Song of Solomon. Uh, we will... Uh, then the added tension is my wife walks in tonight. I'm like, hey, what are you doing here? Yeah, there's only been one time in the history of our marriage and me preaching about 18 years that Shelly ever asked to see my manuscript ahead of Sunday morning. And I had uh, had a title, a sermon, God on Sex. And she said, can I read your sermon for the morning? I may want to go volunteer in the nursery, you know. So uh, it, it's, uh, it, it was fine, though. We came out okay. Well, the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, is an interesting book uh, in the pages of Scripture. Uh, it's named after its author, Solomon, who wrote it. Song of Songs is given the title. You, you hear those two interchangeable. And basically, the reason for Song of Songs is that this is like a superlative. This is the best song. They keep referring to that song. You remember that, that song, that, that one song that you sing, like the, that, the really, really good one? That's what the Song of Songs title is referenced throughout this book speaking to this piece of literature that Solomon wrote. It is actually uh, a poetic song. If you remember back from 1 Kings chapter 4, the reference was that King Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. Not 1,004, not 1,000 or 1,100. It was 1,005 specifically. Uh, this would obviously be one of those songs. The date that it was written, sometime during his reign, obviously, so it would be between around 970 BC and 930 BC. Uh, many scholars look at and say that this was more in the early part of his reign. One reference from that from within the text comes from chapter 6 verse 8 where uh, he speaks of his harem of 140 wives, 140 women. Obviously, we know later in his life, the reference is about a thousand. So like, okay, well, this is early on in his ministry. He hadn't quite built up, you know, yet his, uh, his repertoire with women that's there. The other part of the indication is that it's young in his uh, more vigorous days. You know, in his young manhood when he was, you know, fired up and he, he had lots of experience and lots of wisdom to share about this. And it's interesting, the progression, you know, you get kind of Song of Solomon and, you know, how to woo the ladies and treat the ladies. And it's all about, you know, this, this young masculine pursuit of women and, and some of the things that you see in here, chasing after love. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, later in his life, where he says, it's vanity, it's vanity, all is vanity. So you go from 140 wives to 1,000 wives and the perspective changes, right? Is that how that, how that shakes out? Shelly's not laughing up here. So uh, <laughs> you, you see how that goes in life. But um, so it was thought to be earlier in his, uh, in his reign. The purpose of the book, and this is going to be probably the, the biggest uh, component of tonight, is that, I mean, some look at and they argue even against the Song of Solomon being in the Bible. One of the reasons being that it doesn't mention the name of God in there. We talked about that, uh, you know, earlier in uh, the book of Esther, that name not being in there. The other is this book is pretty explicit. It's relatively graphic in terms of sexuality, 
uh, the erotic love between a, a man and a woman and people are like it just shouldn't be in there because it's just too forward it's too vocal it's too direct to this issue that shouldn't be spoken of in mixed company and we shouldn't be able to look at these things and so uh, there's a little bit of a you know a, a leeriness about the book because it's pretty candid I mean it, it's blunt it's to the point in certain areas and so I gave you this purpose and I'll explain how I arrived at this here in a little bit but it's written to extol the virtues of love between a husband and wife in the context of marriage who love each other spiritually emotionally and physically so this book is a celebration of love that encompasses all parts of love and the marriage relationship. So it's a book about that, and it leaves no stone unturned. And we've talked about in our study through the Old Testament how real to life the Bible is. And the fact that the Bible doesn't hide, it doesn't cover over certain things, certain areas of life. It tells you, you know, David's sin against Bathsheba and his, his, his warts and his shortcomings, as well as what David did well and how he was successful and how he was a man after God's own heart. So the Bible leaves no stone unturned in life. We talked about wisdom literature. Wisdom literature reminds us that God is involved. God oversees and cares about every detail and every aspect of our lives. So as you come to the book, The Song of Songs, there's a huge interpretational issue you kind of have to deal with right out of the gate. And really the purpose and how you look at the book is determined on these lenses through which you interpret the, the Song of Solomon. Some people have for years and years, for centuries as a matter of fact, they looked at the Song of Solomon and said it's an allegory book. It's allegorical in its teaching as in it's symbolic. It's not real in its descriptions. It's symbolic. And their analogy here was that it was the description of Jesus and the church. That the bridegroom in the book, Song of Solomon, is actually King Solomon. And it's symbolic of the church of the New Testament when Jesus would come. Therefore, the wife, the bride in the Song of Solomon, that's described and has the interaction with her uh, bridegroom being Solomon, therefore is the church. It's believers in their relationship. And so when you go back and you look historically, sex and sexuality wasn't talked about a great deal. It wasn't something that was spoken of. Uh, it wasn't celebrated. It was kept very, uh, it was a forbidden topic of conversation. You know, greater modesty, greater uh, steering around that very sensitive and touchy topic. And so people would look at this book and go, oh, there's got to be something else going on here. Can't be talking about that because we don't talk about that topic, you know, that issue. And so therefore they moved into this allegorical interpretation that it's symbolic of Jesus and the church. However, it's interesting to note that there is not a single New Testament reference back to the Song of Solomon. It, it, nowhere in the New Testament is it found that it's cited in any context or relationship mentioned in the entire New Testament. And so as times have changed uh, down through the centuries... Uh, people are more and more open and conversations related to sex and sexuality, looking at that as a gift that God has given in the marriage relationship that he's given for human beings to enjoy, uh, the pursuit of that. Uh, it changed for many people the lenses or the grid by which they viewed the Song of Solomon to say, you know what, it's not an allegory of Jesus and the church. It's a picture, it's a description of 
a marriage relationship, and there are parts of the marriage relationship where it very clearly and candidly speaks about the intimate love and sexual relationship and pursuit of that between a husband and wife, but it's in the context of marriage. And so people said, no, this is what the book's about. And, and it's more of a literal interpretation then based on human interactions and the relationship between a husband and a wife. And so I say all that to say the purpose that I put in here about the marriage description, I take it as that literal picture of descriptions of a marriage relationship in its entirety, even the sexual relations between a husband and wife. And one of the big things about that is I think if you try and hold to the view of this as being symbolic between Jesus and the church, it really, really gets awkward, some passages, as you read through, the, as you read through this book. Let's look at uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 2. I and mean, you just think about, you know, a, a symbolic description here between Jesus and his church. When you read verse 2, it says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant. So that's sweet to the taste, this, this fragrance, this good breath. Your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Well, you know where the king's chambers are. It's the king's bedroom. And so looking at this, I say, well, this is a description of Jesus and his church. Like, woo! You know, it, it, gets, it gets real awkward as you look through some of these passages. Chapter 2, verse 6. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. It's a pretty vivid, intimate description of a interconnectedness between two people. But verse 7 here talks about this. This is a sense of a warning, and it's a reminder here of this precious gift that God has given can be very dangerous and is to be handled very, very carefully. Verse 7, and this is repeated three times throughout this book. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Basically saying this good gift that God has given us can be dangerous. Don't toy with it. Don't mess around with it because as with many of God's good, good gifts, if we don't care for it and approach it and follow God's parameters and God's guidelines, it will harm us. It will hurt us a great deal. Fire. Fire is a good gift. It's a good thing. We cook with it. We stay warm. But if you're not careful with fire, what happens? It will burn you. It will bring destruction and, and even death in that. Water is another great thing. We drink it. We bathe in it. You know, we play in it in the summer. We go visit it, you know, on vacation and all this. But if you're not careful with water, you go to the beach and you understand riptides and you know the dangers and you have to be very, very careful. You go to the lake and you wear life jackets and you, you've got to be careful with water. Why? Because if you're not careful with it, it will hurt you. Well, it can literally take your life. Sexuality is the same thing. It is not to be toyed with. It is to be approached with the same respect and honor and dignity with which our Creator has given it to us. Therefore, it's to be handled how? In the confines of a marriage relationship. And so she says to these young women, this is a maiden speaking to other young women, don't go pursuing love. Don't awaken it until God has led you to that mate, to that partner, until it's time. Because if it gets awakened early, there are lots of ramifications for it uh, in, in a negative sense for not honoring it in that way. Uh, chapter 3 
verse 4, another one of these uh, verses here. Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. And then verse 5 is the same warning that's there. So you see this very physical type of love. And so if you're trying to take this symbolically, you're like, okay, how do I explain this as Jesus and his his bride, you know, the church? I mean, what's, what's the spiritual connotation here? Or you say, this is God celebrating the gift that he's given and part of this. And again, and I'll get to this in a moment. These are just a few verses. We're hitting some smatterings in here. There's more to it than just these verses. But I think this is the biggest uh, issue and challenge in trying to interpret this book allegorically or, or as, a, as symbolism. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 Describing the interaction of the husband and the wife. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. They're white, which is good. You want white eyes. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Okay. We're there. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. Now look at this. All of which bear twins. She's not from Kentucky. <laughs> that means they all have a match, is what that, that, they all have twins. There's one here, one here, not one here, and there's no twin over here. So that they all have twins, and not one of them uh, has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. So the guy's moving down here. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. So uh, rounded cheeks, good color. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. Apparently that was a compliment. Good, good, good straight, you know, neck that's here. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Freckles, maybe, I, I don't know. We're, we're reaching it. Your, your, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Like, oh, wow. So, again, the symbolism of what's taking place here. Skip over to uh, chapter 5. Her description back of her husband. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs, uh, bearded men in that day and time to get the the scent and the, the mounds there. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon choice as the cedar. So he's strong. He's stout as these trees she's describing. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend O daughters of Jerusalem. And so you see this description back and forth of one another and then we get to chapter 7. And he starts his uh, description of her once again. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. And remember in this day and age that... <laughs> Am I blushing? 
suppleness in that day was a gift of, of a sign of wealth and ample food. So that was there. So these descriptions. And again, I'm telling you to say, man, if this is a description of Jesus and his church, it gets really awkward, you know, in, in some of these things. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gates of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. <laughs> Which looks toward Damascus. You're so sweet, honey. <laughs> your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delight. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. You know what grows on palm trees. Well, look at what he says, verse 8. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Wow. So here again is the reason I give you this purpose of this book is to say, I believe this is a picture of a marriage relationship. And in the context, you have these examples that cites and celebrates Listen, we go, oh boy, wow, this stuff, did he just say that out loud? Yes, I did. It's even recorded, you know, so you can go back and listen to it again if my voice cracks while I'm reading it a second time. But it, it's that picture of these things, and, and I tell you all this because the purpose that I give you the book, someone that takes this from an allegorical or a symbolic perspective, they're going to give a whole different purpose as to what this book is about, you know, about Christ and his love for the church and the symbolism of all this. And so it's a very important interpretational thing, and we've talked about this several times. As you come to passages and parts of Scripture, you need to understand the interpretation of how it's intended because it makes a huge difference. I mean, you think about reading through this book and what I just described as a marriage relationship. You're like, okay, but if not, and you say, well, it's a symbolism between Christ and his church, you really got to dig in and say, okay, well, what's this one talking about? And what's this? You know, it sounds like a physical love, but it must be something else. And so you've got to study. I mean, it really impacts how you approach the book of this. Um, and so that for me is where this is. But I will say, and I want to kind of just camp out here for just a minute, that in one sense, we've got to be careful that our pendulum doesn't swing too far the other way. Uh, because we've moved from an era where sex wasn't talked about. It wasn't something that people spoke in mixed company, in public forums. It, there was greater modesty. There was greater reverence, being very discreet about that topic. And now we've moved to an age where... Let's just say that's not the case, right? I mean, do you need me to explain any further that we're living in a very different era? Now, here's where I shake out on this. I believe it's important for the church to address the issue of human sexuality and, and sexual being sexual beings according to what Scripture teaches, which are in the confines, the bonds of marriage. And people say, well, we're, we're people. We have these urges and we have these desires. Well, you know what? So do animals. That's what separates us from animals. Just because we have a desire and an urge doesn't mean we have to act upon that. That's why one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control, okay? And so I believe the church, in a lot of ways, we have failed in our responsibility to speak biblically as God teaches about this topic. And I think we're reaping a lot of the whirlwind of that. That the church hasn't stood, spoken, and stood on God's truth and on God's principles. And we're seeing that come about. I believe that these messages about this 
this are very important that the church speaks into these things and identifies what God says about human sexuality, about sexual relationships, that it's a good thing. God created it. God gave it as a gift. However, God gave us parameters and guidelines on that. It's very important for parents to talk to their children about this topic, and here's why. I read a book on on talking to your kids about sex, and I'll never forget this part drove home, and it clicked for me. It totally clicked about so many things that, that we experience with our kids. The book said this, first messages are most important. First messages are most important. You think about child rearing. You think about bringing children up in knowing the Lord and following the principles and His way and His word and His will. Those first messages, the foundation that you lay for children, everything in their life is rooted and grounded in those things. And so we need to be delivering these messages first because here's what happens. I, so often Christian parents, we, we get real wigged out about talking with our kids about this. And I confess, I mean, I've got a 12-year-old now and as you know, we're reading this stuff and is trying to bring and, and be ahead of the curve with them on this, it was awkward for me. I'm like, man, I don't want to sit down talking to my kids about this. You know, I don't want to lose the innocence and the purity of what this is. But I felt like it was important because these first messages are important. But here's the thing. So many believers don't talk with their children about these things and so they they, they speak nothing of it. it. It's discreet. It's not reverent. It's modesty. And we talk about why we don't do it. Maybe it's just our tension and we're like, this is just a, you know, it, we don't want to talk about it because it's awkward. But our children go out into the world and guess what happens? Oh, they hear messages. They hear a whole lot of messages. Do those messages even come close to what the Bible teaches? Absolutely not. And they come back in and say, Mommy, Daddy, what's this? Tell me about this. And the parents go, whoa. And we get, then we get worked up. No, no, that's not right, honey. That's not the way it is. And so then we try and backfill in. But you know what? They've already heard a first message. And in their mind, there's this little sense of, well, if this is important and this is a big deal and you're telling me there's a different way, why didn't you tell me first? You know, I'm hearing these things and they're comparing everything they hear to that message instead of us teaching God's design, God's parameters, God's guidelines, and them comparing every message they hear after that back to that foundation that we've laid. So it's huge. It's very important. And what I appreciate so much about having some of these texts and this issue brought up in the Song of Songs is that God says, it's okay You need to teach and train and instruct. I deal with this. I address these things because it's a part of the human experience. It is a natural, normative part of life. And he gives us instruction to it. And as parents and as believers, we are to pass those instructions on to others. And so it's very, very important. But again, the pendulum swing here is to, I'm going to back off this for a moment and move on here, is that not seeing the Song of Songs as a book about sex. Because the pendulum has swung this far to where it's almost like we're like middle school boys going, ooh, we can, let's go to look at the Song of Solomon in here. You know, ooh, look at this stuff. And, and guys, we're, we're more guilty of this. Just acknowledge, go, hey, hey, honey, you know what this book says? And so we make it just about that. But the message of the Song of Solomon says, yes, sexuality is a part of the marriage relationship. But you know what? There are a whole lot of other chapters in here and a whole lot of other verses. You know what they say? Caring for your wife. 
speaking kind words and building up your wife and affirming her, that's part of marriage relationship as well. Spending time with your wife, that's part of the marriage relationship as well. So we've got to be aware of this danger of going, wow, there's a book in the Bible that describes and talks about uh, you know, having sex in the marriage relationship. Yeah, it does. As a part of the overall marriage relationship. So don't get so tunnel visioned on this book that that's all that you see that's in there. Okay? Whew, glad we're through that. Let's move right along. Uh, key verses. We've read several of them already. We'll come back to chapter 2, verse 4. But I do want to bring you to chapter 8 here. I want to wrap up um, this one. This is, uh, depending on which outline you look at, it kind of comes to the climax. It's the culmination. Uh, it is the, it, it's the foundation. It's what love brings about. It's the desire of that human intimate relationship with another human being. It's described in verses 6 and 7. It says, Set me as a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm. What does a seal do? Not bounce uh, you know, beach balls on his nose. The other kind of seal. Possession. It closes it. Secures it. Okay, so that's a barrier for other things to to interrupt and get in that. Yeah, so this idea here is that this love between a man and woman seals their bond and their marriage relationship together. That nothing violates it. It's protected. uh, It's cherished. Because you want to seal something, you care for. Therefore, you seal it to to keep it secure uh, from other things, from other dangers. In this description, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Is death a pretty strong force? Yeah, it is. Guess how many people experience death? All of them. All right? And so saying that, that, you know, love is as strong as death. It is a compelling, it is an emotion. It is a part of the human experience that touches every single person. And this jealousy as fierce as the grave is indicating that love can motivate us. Love can drive us. It can drive us in good ways. But if love is rejected, if love is squashed, if love is not expressed, what can happen? It can drive us in negative ways, can't it? And we can pursue the wrong, because we have this pursuit of love, this desire, we can go after it in a myriad of wrong ways and wrong situations. And so, you know, this couple, they're speaking of this power of love that they want to have with one another. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, House, he would be utterly despised. Basically saying if a person were to trade in all of his possessions, all that he has, uh, and forsake that, you know, to, to, to trade love to get possessions, people would say, you're a fool. Why would you do that? Why would you get stuff over experiencing the true fulfillment and contentment that comes from a loving, fulfilling relationship with, you know, a husband with a wife? And so that is a that is a key passage in the scripture. It kind of culminates in this book to wrapping up in those verses right there. The power of love that draws these two individuals to pursue one another passionately in so many ways. Uh, good good uh, section there. 
the themes in theology, we finally shift back as we're in wisdom literature. Uh, you remember as we went through the, the, the book of Psalms, we went through the book of Proverbs, talked about Ecclesiastes. It's kind of a potpourri, a hodgepodge of different things. Well, now in, in uh, the Song of Solomon, we come back to a single purpose or a single theme. Uh, it's one song, one poem that has a single driving focus, which is marriage, but it's got multiple points and applications of that topic. Uh, themes in theology number one on here. One of the things that this book does for us is it combats the worldviews of asceticism, which is a denial of all pleasure. There is, there, and there's always been within human beings this thought of, if it feels good, then we should avoid it. We should steer clear of it. We're more spiritual. We're more righteous. We're more holy. We're a better person if we avoid these things. And then you fill in the blank as to what it is. Well, you know, I, I don't do that. And because of that, people are like it, it's it, whether it's a pleasurable thing. You know, growing up, the phrase from my uh, my small country church was, uh, "You don't uh, smoke, drink, or chew, or date girls who do." R- right? Yeah, so, the, the, I'm from Kentucky. All right, so <laughs> you, you had to put that part in there because it was a very realistic element of it. <laughs> But this whole thing of denying yourself these things, and, and you know, you're more righteous, you know, if you didn't do these things, and it's kind of, it's working your way to be more like God, and I mean, there are people that really went to the extremes in asceticism, I mean, they wanted nothing sweet, nothing sugary, no fruit, it was, you want, we want bland food, we wear just, you know, plain brown burlap clothing, sack sort of thing, I mean, people who really denied any form of pleasure, because their thought was, and even as you see in Scripture, the Bible speaks of the flesh and pursuing the pleasures and the lust of the flesh, and and often thing, oftentimes those things bring joy and, and, and good sensations and positive emotions and feelings. And their their thought was, if you pursue the flesh and it makes you feel good, then you should pursue the spirit. And the opposite of feeling good is feeling nothing or feeling bad. And so the ascetic, you know, leads to that direction. So the the Song of Solomon says no. No. Enjoy things in life. Enjoy a relationship with another person and be married and enjoy companionship and enjoy holding one another in your arms and enjoy having pursuits and things that you do together. It's okay to have friends. I mean, she spoke and said, my lover is my friend. And, and, and the Song of Solomon says, yeah, in, in, enjoy that if that's the path and the, and the, the door that, that God opens for you. It, it's okay to experience pleasurable things in life. And in this context, it's a marriage relationship, but there are a whole lot of pleasurable things that we can enjoy in life, all right? And God says it's okay to do that. So that's one side is you can enjoy that. Well, the other worldview then, the opposite of asceticism is... Hedonism, yeah. And basically, what is that one? Well, that's where you pursue only pleasure. These are the people who are like, woo! If it feels good, do it, you know? Eat, drink, and be merry for what? For tomorrow you die. So live for today. And man, whatever I've got time to do today, whatever feels good, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to give myself to this pleasure pursuit. And life's too short to not have fun or to not have pleasure. So I'm not going to deny myself any of these things. And the Song of Solomon says, hold on, slow down there. Take it easy, rein it in. Enjoy pleasure, but 
don't just give yourself to it. She warns them, don't awaken this desire until it's time. And we see some of the, the issues that come here. They're separated and there's a, a longing to, to be back together. And so they've got to show some restraint for themselves in that time. There are challenges to their love. And so they have to focus and reconnect. They have to work at their marriage relationship as described in this book. And so basically understand this. The Christian journey isn't exclusively asceticism or hedonism, okay? It, it, it's not either or. It, it's a mixture of there are pleasurable things. Enjoy those. But we do need to follow restraints and, and guidelines and principles that God gives us in his word. Uh, you know, for some people, you know, with the, the kind of the more you know, ascetic bent of it is when you speak of the joy of the Lord, say, tell your face, you know, that you can smile and it's okay. You know, let, let your face know that there's a joy of the Lord and, you know, be, be happy and, you know, a, a good countenance about you. Uh, but for others, remind them of 1 Corinthians 10, 23, where Paul says, all things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. It says all things are lawful, but not all things build up. So we've got freedom in Christ. We can enjoy a number of things. And people shake out as to the morality of certain topics and issues. Uh, let's just go ahead and put it out there. Alcohol is one of those, you know, for Christians and believers in the church where, you know, what's the Bible teach about that? Well, it says don't be drunk. It tells us to not do that ever. But there can be some leeway in the middle for having a drink of alcohol. And we see that, you know, in the New Testament. We see it in Jesus' ministry at the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee. Paul telling Timothy to drink some of that. So there's some freedom in that and if people want to exercise that freedom that's okay they're not a non-christian and they're not you know uh, walking away from their faith and they're not going to go to heaven because of that however Paul says if you choose to abstain and not do it that's okay too it may be lawful to do that but not all things are helpful not all things build up so if you want to not do that and take that stand and that view then that's okay too there's some freedom in that and, and to not, you know, get so wrapped around the axle on that one way or the other that we, we can't live in unity and harmony in the body of Christ in that. And so there are a number of topics and issues in that way. And so the Song of Solomon very simply brings us to this center here. And you think about the Song of Solomon following on the heels of the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember last week I told you that part of what Solomon said was, from the end of life, he said, hey, enjoy life while you're young. Remember talking about that? Enjoy life while you're young because you're going to get old and you can't enjoy it any longer. You know, your body gives out and it doesn't taste, you know, as good and you're just not able to do things. You know, so then you get this picture here in the Song of Solomon saying, it's okay. Enjoy life as God blesses you and gives you that opportunity. You can do that. That's okay. But always, always, always honor God in that. Follow his word. Look to him and follow his leading of his Holy Spirit and what his word teaches. So it's a good balance for us here. Uh, number two, uh, there are several pictures here as you go through. Uh, there are a number of uh, opportunities and places that you do see pictures of Christ's life, his love, his death for his bride, the church. You know, I, told you, I don't think the whole book is symbolism, but we've talked about through our study through the Old Testament that you see Jesus in every book of the Old Testament. When we've looked and we've seen you know, types and foreshadowing and messages and lessons about Jesus, 
Jesus that we see in the Old Testament? Well, we see that uh, in this book, as the Bible does talk about. Jesus gave himself up for his bride, the church. You know, we see his sacrificial love. Uh, we see here in the book of uh, Solomon, Song of Solomon, uh, the the descriptions and the love that the bride has, that the groom has for his bride and the bride has for her groom. And it should be a picture of, of our love and our pursuit and, and desire to know Christ and to have uh, that close relationship with him. A real common one here is in chapter 2, uh, Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. So to a banqueting house is a place of celebration. There's a meal. There's a, there's a, there's a celebration taking place. So he brings me in. And who's the guest of honor? The bride. His banner over me is love. Psalm 23 speaks of the good shepherd. The 23rd Psalm. What does it talk about at the end of that chapter? What? The table. Prepare us a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Anoint my head with oil. That's setting apart the individual that's described there as a place of honor. As a a place of being recognized as the guest of honor of a special position. So we see this description here that we we fast forward and we foreshadow. When I'm at doing funeral services, most often at the graveside, I read the 23rd Psalm. And I speak about those pictures of the good shepherd and, and leading to waters and his goodness and preparing a table. You know. And I I speak of that promise being fulfilled in the presence of the Good Shepherd in eternity. Do you know what the the profession is of Song of Solomon here? The description of what he does? He's a shepherd caring for his sheep. Jesus described himself as the what? The good shepherd, the great shepherd. Yeah, so a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery of Christ uh, in his bride and this relationship that we have that's here. Number three uh, on your outline, there's marriage wisdom in the book, The Song of Songs. Uh, speak Generally, giving your spouse the attention that he or she needs. That's taking and making time to fully know your spouse. I mean, these two individuals, they pursue one another and they leave friends and they, they, they go out of their way to be together with their spouse. It reminds us in a marriage relationship that we should take time. We should make time to be together with our spouse and pay attention to their needs. We should encourage and praise our spouses and not criticize. They speak these flowing glowing words of love and how much they love and appreciate one another. The physical descriptions are ways of building up their spouses. Uh, Letter C on here enjoying each other. Uh, The couple in here, they go, they leave, they get away from people. It talks about going to the country and being a way it's time together and you have to make time and you have to protect that in a marriage relationship Uh, and you delight in one another and you delight in one another by being together and having unhurried time just enjoying that relationship Uh, and then letter D on here do whatever is necessary to reassure your love to your spouse as you read through this book uh, she gets nervous she's worried about if she's going to be acceptable to her husband what's he going to think about her body and her skin color and all these things and she's nervous about that and he reassures her he speaks these words of her beauty and all these you know the towers and the flocks of goats and all this kind of stuff I mean those are words of affirmation of how much he loves and appreciates her she's insecure so he speaks these words to build her up and then letter four on there just this book extols the goodness of marriage and as God leads individuals to that path it's just a reminder of this good gift that God has given uh, and that can and should be enjoyed
So the outline there, uh, you can basically set it up and uh, you see the descriptions here. There's the courtship. This is the, the longing, the desire to be together. The wedding uh, that, that culminates and, and begins the relationship and then the maturing marriage. Uh, they're separated. They long to be back together. Uh, the final praise of beauty and then that desire to be together permanently. Those verses we talked about and then the conclusion there at the end of the book. So that is the Song of Songs, all right? So uh, I don't know if you've ever read through and looked at that or not. Uh, it's, uh, it, again, it's finding its way back into mainstream Christianity a lot more nowadays in the culture we live in. But as with all things, you know, be balanced and understand what you're looking at and what God teaches about it and counsel it or put it in the context of the full counsel of God's word. All right? It's not a snippet, not a part we pull out, look at by itself. It is a part of a greater picture, the greater understanding of who God is, of how he loves and desires a relationship with himself above all else. And that relationship with him then flows out and it influences and impacts every other relationship and every other thing we experience in life.